American freedom is secured by the commitment of our courts and our people to the rule of law. National Review's The McCarthy Report offers listeners in-depth analysis on the most pressing legal questions facing the country. Alongside National Review Editor-in-Chief Rich Lowry, veteran prosecutor and law professor Andy McCarthy leverages his decades of legal experience to cut through the noise of media hysteria with sober-minded, thoughtful commentary. Tune in to The McCarthy Report on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Is Mike Pence disloyal? Has Hillary Clinton been screwed by lonely people into the women's soccer team get what it deserved? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined, as always, by the Right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Rothman, and the Dominator, Dominic Pino. You are, of course, listening to a Nashville podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Ball and Branch Sheets and the Free the Economy podcast. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Dominic, the political system is still absorbing the shocks of this latest Jack Smith indictment over Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election. A um, element of the fallout has been that Mike Pence has been unleashed. He's you know, always been uh, tough on Trump over what happened on January 6th, but it's been taken to a new level, I think, because, you know, there's no alternative. What else is he going to do? He's probably going to be a witness at this uh, trial if it happens. And uh, he, he has to own his historic role. And I do think it was a historic role. He was one of the heroes of this episode. And Pence, I'm oh, sorry, Trump now has deemed him little, says he's uh, gone to the dark side, says there was once a negative major magazine profile of Mike Pence that he read years ago that said what a bad guy he is. Is Mike Pence a bad guy? Rich, Mike Pence is not a bad guy. Um, When Pence announced his candidacy, I wrote on the corner that it's a good thing that he's running, even if he's not going to win, um, just because, uh, as you mentioned, he had this unique role on January 6th where he stood up for his office and for the Constitution, and he did the right thing. Um, And... uh, uh, and that's a story that voters need to hear, that people need to hear, um, that there is actually uh, a credible Republican alternative to uh, to Donald Trump. And it's an alternative that's based in the Constitution and the rule of law. And uh, that's that's what Mike Pence can represent uh, to the electorate. And he did a good job as vice president, um, oversaw a lot of the same uh, policy successes uh, that that came out of the Trump administration, but was able to do so without being uh, dragged into this uh, ridiculous uh, conspiracy theory and also uh, the ridiculous um, attempts to subvert the uh, will of the Electoral College. Yeah, so it's been obviously tough going so far for Mike Pence, probably going to be tough going uh, for, for the duration, but there was, uh, the conventional wisdom was he'd have a hard time even qualifying for the first debate. A little bit of good news for Pence, he has indeed 
qualified. So Pence and his team know have kind of taken a pass on the, the legal merits of the case. They just say this is something wrong that Trump did and he should never be president again. But someone who's not taken a pass on the legal merits of this case is um, you. And we've, mm-hmm. we batted around some of the legal merits on the episode Friday. You weren't on, but you are more favorably inclined to the uh, to, to Jack Smith's interpretation of the law here. So explain explain why. Well, perhaps less favorably inclined towards, but merely disinclined to summarily dismiss it. Um, to Per Mike Pence, Pence has left open the option of testifying in the case if he is called. I suspect that the badgering that he's receiving isn't doing anything to dissuade him. But if he were to testify, it would be on the strongest of all the allegations against Donald Trump and his unindicted co-conspirators conspirators, involving the fake electors scheme. The allegations in the indictment are, and they're very well supported, that um, these electors were misled deliberately and knowingly in writing um, with promises that their services would not be used without uh, court action triggering them. Those documents were submitted to the vice president and the archivist with the intention of preventing the orderly transition of power. You might say, well, the Supreme Court is not uh, the current Supreme Court is not inclined to look favorably on the precedents that establish a definition of fraud that involves obstructing government proceedings that's overbroad. But those are the prevailing precedents. And it speaks to the dishonesty and deceit in the charges and the corrupt intent of the alleged conspirators that they, for example, lied to these electors, tricked them in the, in the words of the document, and also took action to ensure that other states of so these seven states, two states, put language in this um, order to indemnify the electors if there was no court order triggering this sort of thing. And they tried to, to stop that from getting out. If this gets out, this is a quote, this gets out, we charged the changed language for Pennsylvania, it could snowball. They didn't want other states to have that language in there. Why? They also talked about how it was a crazy plan and a donkey show. And the Wisconsin GOP executive director, Andy Hitt, was saying these guys are up to no good and it's going to fail miserably because... They were doing their best to obscure from the media the idea that these electors were planning um, to meet and to conspire in order to obstruct government um, proceedings, which doesn't exactly suggest that this was all going out out in the open and everybody should have been aware of how crazy this was. There were efforts to obscure from the public what was happening behind the scenes. Uh, Is it crazy but not illegal? Does this criminalize legal theories? I don't know. We should investigate that. It's a live issue, but it goes both ways. To decline uh, under the assumption that the current Supreme Court would look down on all this existing precedent involving obstruction would, it w- would be to chill the work of lawyers, you know, that's possibly true in the other direction, too, because you, you should be able to submit plausible but ultimately unavailing legal theories. And lastly, I would say, just as an addendum, that there is this commentary around, and particularly on the right, that all this is attributable to a psychological disposition, that this is an effort to redo successfully the failed impeachment and removal of the president in 2021. And I just think that armchair analysis is equally unhelpful because it also goes both ways. You could say the same for the effort to say, well, just dismissing that summarily is an effort to erect an elaborate psychological permission structure that allows you to avoid reckoning with the evidence in, in, uh, in offer, the statutes that are violated, the existing precedent, and the standards for a successful prosecution. I just don't think that's a really helpful argument. Um, I'm not predisposed to uh, argue with, for example, 
Andy McCarthy or Dan McLaughlin or half a dozen others who think that a lot of these charges are stretches, particularly the 371. But when it comes to the fake electors, I think there's real open legal questions there about who's exposed and how exposed they are, and they should be pursued. So, so Noah, so who, I, I take as a given that it was a donkey show and they, they were lying to these, these people, but what, what is the, the, the crime would be lying to them in furtherance of a, of a scheme to obstruct a congressional proceeding because he wanted it to, to have them in, in place to, uh, to convince Mike Pence to push the button and reject Biden electors? What, I mean, what, my, what's my the, very the, lay what, understanding. So um, lying to the electors presumably is not a crime. Well, misleading the archivist in the effort to obstruct the peaceful transition of power, the lawful conduct of government, um, and my very lay understanding of the precedents that are applicable in this case, might meet the definition of obstruction and fraud. So this is one one place where I, I disagree with you, is that um, if... Yeah, so lawyers can have can have theories and push the envelope of the law. They do it all the time, but doing it in in this context, in this case, uh, seems highly imprudent. Um, if if you got them nailed, you know, dead to rights on something, which you know uh, seems to be the case with the the documents case, fine. But um, stretching and a really momentous. Um, indictment just just seems bad policy on its on its face at least to me well it might be bad politics i mean, probably certainly is bad politics based on just accepting bad, everything bad policy I mean, bad bad idea for for everyone on, on like all all dimensions if, the, if this is legally defective it shouldn't have happened and there's a chance it's legally defective at least so it just seemed to me if the t- tie goes to the runner don't do it if you're not sure the law is nailed down, would be my... Yeah, it's prudential. It's a prudential question, and I, I share those concerns. Um, but the, the idea here that Trump's legal team can push whatever envelope they want on the basis that, you know, it's plausible, even if it, if it fails to prevail ultimately in court, well, the same privilege is extended to the government. Charlie. I have concerns over this, and they are not generated by either a desire to defend Donald Trump on this or any other count, or by some need to psychoanalyze the president, those who declined to convict him, or anyone else. I think there are practical reasons to, as Rich says, be nervous about this theory being tested in this case in the way that it will be. Of course, as an abstract principle, we have lawyers and courts and juries to do just that. But that doesn't mean we ignore the red flags. And there are red flags here. I worry that two palpably negative consequences could flow from this. Neither of those is that Donald Trump ends up in prison or is dropped by the electorate or is deemed politically unviable or any of that. The first negative consequence that could flow from this is that the definition of fraud as construed by America's courts is widened to the point at which 
we sanction a tit-for-tat criminalization of what has hitherto been a political process. I understand people disagree with that. I understand people agree with that. I understand there is a spectrum. I'm not quite sure where I fall on it myself, but that is a risk. The idea that this is the sort of question that has historically been reserved to impeachment is not one that is driven out by the events of two years ago. It's one that has been informed by a proper understanding of the difference between criminal questions and political questions and the understanding that you do after a while end up with a banana republic if those two concepts are conflated. As I said last time around, if you look at the definition of fraud that is provided within this indictment, if you look at the argument that is being made, and if you look at the text of the law in question, a creative prosecutor could take non-President Joe Biden, either after his retirement or if he loses next year, to court for his student loan order. Now, there will be people listening who say, that's whataboutism. No, it's not. You're trying to equate the two. I'm not. I'm merely pointing out that categorically speaking, there is a potential Pandora's box here that we do not want to open, even to get Donald Trump. That's the first risk. That's a tangible risk. The second risk is, I think, even more palpable. And that is that because the Supreme Court in recent years has narrowed the definition of fraud, because those decisions have been nine to nothing in some cases, because the most recent decision that was written in this area was penned by Elena Kagan, not, say, Samuel Alito, there is a reasonable, if not high, chance that a conviction of Donald Trump would be thrown out at the Supreme Court, if not by a majority unanimously. And if that happens, Donald Trump, the demagogue, is going to run around the United States and say, the Supreme Court looked at January 6th and concluded that I did nothing wrong. Would that be technically true? No. Would that be reasonable? No. Would that be damaging to our politics? Yes, it would. And would Jack Smith have given Trump some of the rope to hang him with? Yeah. Because if you look at the indictment, which is not intrinsically linked to January 6th, it opens with pages of descriptions, political descriptions, let's be honest, of the disgrace that was the Capitol riot. I don't think the average onlooker is going to dig into this case and the history of the Supreme Court superintendents of fraud at the federal level and distinguish between all of those technicalities and Donald Trump's claim. I think Jack Smith has put a hostage to fortune on top of the building that if things tilt the wrong way, could help Donald Trump demagogue the hell out of this and make himself look as if he was the victim of a frivolous criminal prosecution and that the Supreme Court ended up intervening and saying you did nothing wrong at all, which is, of course, not the case. He did do something wrong. He did something profoundly wrong. He did something historically wrong. 
He should have been impeached for it. There may be criminal charges within the indictment that will stick. There are certainly other criminal charges of which I believe Donald Trump to be guilty. But these particular ones, it really matters whether or not they are legally sound. Not out of some abstract commitment to uh, refusing to prosecute your opponents. Not because Donald Trump is good or bad, but because the law matters. And if he is acquitted, either by a jury or by the Supreme Court, it is going to look to most people as if what he did wasn't bad. And Can it I was. just ask Charlie how you would synthesize those two, genuinely, how you would synthesize those two concerns? A, that <clears throat> the the interpretation of statute here is so broad that it could invite the frivolous prosecution of, of sitting presidents or past presidents, and two, that it will be narrowed by the Supreme Court in a way that ensures that that doesn't happen. Well, I'm not synthesizing them. I'm saying that there are risks however this comes out. If, indeed, Donald Trump is uh, indicted, as he has been, and then he is convicted, as he could be, and then his conviction is upheld, the risk is that in order to get to that point, the Supreme Court and perhaps lower courts in the process have had to expand the definition of fraud such that the next time a case is mooted around in maybe a Republican Justice Department, the lawyers decide that it's been violated by Joe Biden over and over again with his illegal executive orders. On the flip side, if it is the case, as it may well be, that the Supreme Court does not change its definition of fraud or that the jury acquits because the instructions from the judge ask them to look at the letter of the law, not whether or not Donald Trump is a good or bad person, which is how it should be in a courtroom, then it's going to look to the public as if Donald Trump did nothing wrong. It's going to look to the public as if even the impeachment case was frivolous. I'm saying that I think that as a political matter, as a legal matter, and as a matter for the future operation of the United States' political system, the Democrats were much better off where they were which was building a political case against Donald Trump and what he did, which was correct. And for what it's worth, not that I have a great vested interest in this, at least not once Trump's out of the picture, that was working, if you look at what happened in 2022. This is a big risk. I'm not saying you're wrong now. I, I think this is nuanced, and I respect some of the people who've dissented, but I really think there are many more reasons to be worried about this than... Abstract psychology. It's, it's not dispositive, certainly not on the, the question of 371, but there was a Wall Street Journal article just the other day about these high-profile fraud cases, prosecutions around the country falling apart because of the new, the way that the court has narrowed the definition of fraud. And it, it at the very least, is kind of a, a, a weird uh, disjunction between we're going we're gonna to have run this, this most extravagant uh, theory of, of, of fraud or the most, most consequential... Um, uh, ambitious view of fraud case like ever in the history of the United States at the same time that the court has been going in, the, in this this other direction on the question. So, Dominic, another way this uh, case I interacts with, with politics uh, uncomfortably is just the question of, um, you know, what, what can Trump can, can say. So we were talking about Pence earlier. So uh, Pence says this thing, Trump totally blasts him. Uh, on on Truth Social, and then some commentators like, how can he say that? That's witness intimidation. You know, this this guy could could be testifying in his court case, and how can Trump be criticizing him this way? Uh, but obviously, you know, th this is someone running against Trump in a, a nomination battle. So, in the ordinary course of things, of course, he should be able to say whatever he wants about him. 
Yeah, this, these problems are all downstream of Congress failing to do its job. <clears throat> this is something we usually talk about in the context of regulation, where the administrative state uh, fills in and makes a bunch of rules because Congress gave it uh, a, a blank check to uh, uh, to exercise power however it wanted to. And so um, Congress, rather than being the lawmaking body it is supposed to be, ends up delegating that to the executive branch and to the courts. Um, it's a similar story here. And I think that's where a lot of these weird problems come in because in our constitutional order, we have a punish- we have a punishment system for political crimes. It's called impeachment and conviction. Uh, the founders were smart to put it in there the way that they did. And uh, we, as a result of a couple of things, one, that we have criminalized that process and made it overly legalistic. Um, that was not what the, mm-hmm. that was not what the, uh, what the founders intended. They had a much uh, a different idea of that. These, this is for uh, crimes against the body politic uh, that are not necessarily statutory crimes. Um, but the second part of that is that uh, Congress should have stood up for itself in the aftermath of January 6th. Uh, the president, you know, sent a mob to Congress uh, Mike Pence, who was the target of uh, of so much of this, was acting in his role as president of the Senate. And so uh, this should have been a, a moment for Congress to wisen up and say, hey, we need to take back some of our some of our power here. We need to punish the executive branch for what it did to disrupt our proceedings. We need to impeach and convict uh, convict Trump. Now, they decided not to do that. Um, I think part of that is the uh, highly partisan way. In which Democrats conducted the um, conducted the impeachment. I mean, we've 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 been through all of that before. But uh, as a result of Congress's failure to do that, now we are in this situation where uh, the uh, executive branch, through prosecutors, and the judicial branch through the courts, are going to have to clean up a mess that Congress didn't solve. And mm-hmm. so uh, mm-hmm. it does open all of these questions, like you said, about witness intimidation, about standards of evidence in court, about what you're allowed to say uh, in the process of a trial. Again, in an impeachment process, none of that stuff matters because it's a political process and we understand it to be mm-hmm. such. Mm-hmm. But we are in this situation now where all of those are very live questions and it will be uh, very difficult to adjudicate uh, exactly how, uh, how this should be worked out. So Noah, next question to you. Uh, last uh, week or so since this indictment, the 2024 Republican primary race is looking better to you, worse than you, the same. The same, I think. I don't see any real effect on the trajectory of the race um, from this indictment or even the last federal indictment. Honestly, um, the trajectory was altered by the Bragg indictment and has remained where it was ever since. Um, That dynamic benefits Donald Trump politically. It will continue to benefit him politically. Um, But as Dominic laid out in the last segment, uh, this is not a political question anymore. So it's just, it's divorced from that, but no question. The perception that Donald Trump is being persecuted by the powers that be wherever they reside benefits him politically. Charlie? I think that the race is largely where it was, that these indictments would drag him down a little bit over time. But I do sense 
some new life in DeSantis, who I think has been running a weak campaign but seems to have turned a corner. The way I would put that is now I think we will find out whether or not DeSantis is good enough and whether or not it matters. Mm -hmm. I think maybe a month ago I would have said, well, I don't know whether he ran a good campaign. Therefore, Trump was never tested. I, w- I would say, I suspect- I'd say turning the corner maybe is a little strong, but I, I think he's he's shown the possibility that he's going to grow and get better on the campaign trail. You, you can see glimmers. Of well, that. I think his answers have got better, and he started to criticize Trump, which is something that he needs to do. But I don't see much change in the polling, so perhaps none of it matters. Dominic. Um. Yeah, it's so hard to say. I think, uh, it, uh, as Charlie said, I mean, there's just there's just no movement in a lot of the polling. Uh, DeSantis has been doing uh, slightly worse on the uh, national average polls, but I still don't think polls actually mean all that much yet because most people are still not really paying that close attention to the race. And so it'll be um, more interesting to see what happens as we get closer to it and as people really have to grapple with the idea that yeah, like, do we really want to nominate a major party uh, candidate who is under indictment from multiple jurisdictions at the same time? Yeah, so I would say the same. It still looks uh, very bad if you're hoping someone besides Trump will win. There's the occasional poll. If you squint the right way, you're on the cusp of competitiveness. There was a New York Times poll of Iowa last week that I think had it 44, Trump 22. DeSantis, you know, and Trump comes down a little bit. DeSantis gets a little uh, momentum. You can see see that becoming competitive. But it's a little bit like, uh, you know, if you watch scores obsessively on ESPN.com uh, the way I do or the ESPN app, you know, you get this, uh, and Dominic probably studied this closer than I have, this probability of who's going to win depending on, you know, every play, say, in a football game. You know, and if you're if uh, you're winning by 10 points, you have an 80% chance of winning or something, which always seems high to me. But there's some chance the other team's not going to score 10 points. And there's a, a potential that you're going to score more points. So it, it might be that Trump, as Charlie is alluding to, you know, he doesn't come down or even ends up uh, going up. And it's just not not a race. With that, let's hear from our first sponsor of this episode, Ball and Branch Sheets, Charlie. Did you know that most bedding is made with harsh chemicals like formaldehyde, synthetic pesticides and toxic dyes? But one company is changing the standard for good. That company is Ball and Branch, which makes the softest, most luxurious sheets without any toxins or harsh chemicals. They use the finest 100% organic cotton that's traceable from family farm to your family home. And Ball and Branch sheets have a natural unmatched softness and they get softer with every single wash. I have Ball and Branch sheets. I can tell you they are natural. They're unmatched in their softness, and they do get softer with every wash. They're great quality. And if you live in a hot climate, as I do, especially at the moment, good Lord, it is hot. Ball and Branch sheets will help you out. They're designed to feel incredible for all sleepers. And that includes four U.S. presidents. It includes the... People who wrote what, the what, over- are they, what are those presidents impeached? 
I don't know, but I tell you what, if they had been impeached and they were waiting to find out if they were convicted, they would have slept very well on the eve of the trial on Bolan Branch. And maybe even written one of the 11,000 reviews that Bolan Branch has to its name. They would have spent the pre-trial night feeling buttery to the touch, super breathable on the 100% organic cotton threads and they come in 10 versatile colors in all sizes from twin up to california king they fit the deepest of mattresses and they're labeled with top and bottom tags so making your bed is easier than ever and best of all ball and branch offers a 30 night worry-free guarantee with free shipping and returns on all u.s orders so if you want to sleep better at night with ball and branch sheets get 15 percent off your first order and you use Promo code editors at bollandbranch.com. That's B O L L A N D branch.com. Promo code editors. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Thanks very much, Charlie. Let's stick with you, Charlie, because we're going to talk about Hillary Clinton's Atlantic piece that you were quite exercised by and wrote a piece about yesterday on the website. So Hillary's thesis basically is that there are these incels out there, these uh, socially disconnected and disaffected young men who have been organized by Steve Bannon into an army that is pushing all sorts of conspiracy theories and disinformation and poisoning our politics. And these people came after her in in 2016 and have gotten even worse since she more or less not explicitly, but she, she was warning about this coming crisis in her 1996 classic it takes a village, and now this this loneliness crisis, epidemic of loneliness we have, has been weaponized against people like her, against the left, and uh, the, the the way we can address it is by un- union organizing and and by having parents protest book bans at school board meetings that will knit this country back together. What do you make of it? Well, I found it intolerable because this is a real issue. Now, it's not an issue that I think can be solved by government, but that doesn't mean it isn't real. I had Tim Carney on my podcast a couple of episodes ago to talk about loneliness and isolation and atrophied communities in America. Tim wrote a book about it in 2019, and we explored all sorts of angles and causes and potential solutions And somehow we managed to do so without descending into a ludicrously narrow, partisan, angry worldview. Because this is not one of those issues that can be set neatly under the Republicans or Democrats' carapace. Hillary Clinton, though, despite having been given 3,500 words on this in one of the most prestigious magazines in America, if not the world just cannot get out of this monomaniacal, cramped framework of hers. She introduces the topic of loneliness and isolation. She makes it clear that she is talking about this in a sociological sense. She references Robert Putnam. She talks about the Surgeon General's report. And then suddenly, we're talking about the vast right-wing conspiracy, a phrase that is used unironically. We're talking about right-wing politicians and right-wingers and right-wing billionaires and right-wing business people. We're talking about Newt Gingrich and Rush Limbaugh and Steve Bannon. 
There's, there's literally a paragraph in there, Charlie, where, sorry to interrupt, where she said, you know, this, uh, I, I warned about this epidemic of loneliness and how families need to devote more time and energy to their children. And I was worried about Rush Limbaugh and Newt Gingrich. Like, that's, like these are the same, th- these are somehow joined. This is inadequate, is what it is. It is an inadequate way of seeing the world. I don't think that everything Hillary writes here is wrong. Of course it is true that there are young men who are socially isolated, who spend too much time on the internet and have picked up some ugly political views and a worldview that is not going to benefit them or anyone else in the long run. But the idea that that is the primary or only reason to be worried about the decline in American community is absolutely ridiculous. Hillary Clinton only sees one side of the country. And I noted in my piece, there's another side of this, that if we are absent political point scoring to think properly about this, we need to address. One of them is that actually, if we're playing post hoc ergo propter hoc, there is a lot of loneliness that leads to people voting for the Democratic Party as well. It's not just Steve Bannon and Breitbart readers who have moved to the right. If you're married in America, you're much more likely to be a Republican. If you're single, you are much more likely to be a Democrat. I'm not judging the Democratic Party for that. That's a fact. She doesn't mention it. Towns and counties with lots of children in them have more conservative politics. It's another correlation that she ignores. Churchgoers, people who go to church every week or more, are 15 points more likely to be Republicans than Democrats. And as we know from Robert Putnam, who was not a conservative or or even a churchgoer, church is one of the key institutions that has declined and thereby made us all lonely. Also, Republicans have more friends who are Democrats than vice versa, and they're better at describing the ideologies of their opponents. She doesn't mention any of that. That stuff matters, not because I personally am a conservative, but because if we're really talking about loneliness and isolation, if we're really worried about community, then we need to know these links. And then the end just gets silly. I think we both wrote about this, Rich. She points to the most common diagnosis of what has happened here, which is essentially a diminishment in Tocqueville in America. She writes that there are fewer people now who attend religious services, join unions, clubs, and civic organizations. That's true. But the only things that she says that inspire her, that she's proud of, that give her hope that it's going to be reversed, are, this is the exhaustive list, mums and dads showing up at school board meetings and getting involved in local politics. All right, first off, that's politics, not necessarily community. But here's the Mm -hmm. best bit. For the first time, because they refused to let extremists ban books from the neighborhood library. So it's not even school boards per se. Next item. Teenagers turning to old school school flip phones so they're no longer at the mercy of giant tech firms and hidden algorithms. Again, she just can't help but stick in the political angle. Companies giving employees time off to vote. And then... Workers bravely organizing corporate warehouses and coffee shops or walking a picket line. Now, those things are all fine. It's a free country. If those are the things you're into, that's fine. But are those really the only things that she can think of? If (laughs) If I, as a conservative, can accept that people are going to find community in things that I don't particularly like or or relish or value, 
Why can't she acknowledge that if we're all going to help fix this, it's also going to involve churches, small businesses, sports leagues, homeschooling groups, things that she doesn't particularly like, but nevertheless help to allay loneliness. This was such a, a missed opportunity. And I finished my piece yesterday by saying that the title was actually revealing. The title of the piece is The Weaponization of Loneliness. Now, of course, in her mind, that means Steve Bannon. But actually, it's a confession. That's what she's done here. She's seen this somewhere. She's read the literature. She's looked at Vivek Murthy's missive. And she said, aha, I can use this to crowbar in all of the things that I mm -hmm. think are politically important when that is the last thing from left or from right that's going to solve this problem. Yeah, I mean, it's just she's just has such a plodding way about her, including her her thought. I mean, this thing is so jejune and, and as you know, point out her, her coalition was almost certainly the lonelier coalition, right? The Democrats heavily dependent on uh, unmarried people, especially unmarried women who tend to be lonelier. New England is the loneliest region in the country and people are lonelier in big cities, right? And th those are all key constituent parts of her coalition. So Dominic, this is Hillary's uh, piece was one explanation for the, the mega phenomenon or an aspect of it. We had another that generated a lot of commentary from David Brooks, New York Times last week, who wrote a piece, what if we are the baddies, meaning the, the, the highly uh, educated, meritocratic elite in this country that is very self-satisfied and smug, that uh, doesn't get to know anyone outside of its social circles, that takes over every um, appealing job in the country and emphasizes skills more and more in those occupations. So you need more members of the meritocratic elite to, to fill these jobs and people who aren't part of this elite are screwed over and excluded. The elite speaks this uh, esoteric language of uh, woke, you know, Latinx and all the rest of it, and has these constantly shifting uh, moral and social standards where the non-elite can't keep up and ha have to uh, face the prospect of being punished if they're not keeping up. And this, this is why we have Donald Trump. Does that, is that a persuasive argument for you? Uh, overall, I don't think so. I think he makes some good points about how elites don't preach what they practice. This is something that conservatives have talked about for a while, that um, you know, uh, people that are well off in the United States generally tend to actually uphold very traditional sort of family values, um, you know, getting married before you have children, um, believing that it's important to have a secure source of income before you get married, um, those sorts of things. Uh, they actually tend to do that and it tends to work out very well for them. But instead of uh, saying, you know, uh, hey, this this works out, people should do this, uh, they then assume this very um, uh, non-judgmental, oh, you know, everybody should do whatever and, and we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't say that this is a, a model for success, even though it's, it's demonstrated to be one. So um, I think that's true. But I think the problem that Brooks runs into is that the vast majority of people just don't think about the elites all that much. They're not sitting around thinking about how much they want to be elites. Um, most people don't want to be elites, actually. Um, and that's not to say that they don't want to do well. That's not to say they don't want to be successful. They just don't define success as going to an Ivy League school and serving on the Supreme Court. 
they define success as uh, having a stable job and providing for their family. Um, and you can do that by attending a state school or attending a technical college or uh, doing any number of different uh, jobs out there that will allow you to uh, work your way up and make six-figure income and do really, really well for yourself and, and, and really well for your family uh, while also being a part of uh, you know your church community or uh, a local club or organization. And, uh, and, and the fact that you didn't go to law school or that you uh, didn't get a, a clerkship on the Supreme Court just really never crosses your mind at all. So I, I just don't think that there is actually this huge group of people out there that are really resentful of uh, this, um, this very specific kind of elite achievement that Brooks is talking about. Um, I, I just don't think most people really think about it that much at all. And they're not really bummed out that they are functionally excluded from it, even though they are functionally excluded from it. They're just okay with that. So no, it does seem to me that there is an aspect of Trump, which is a gigantic middle finger to to the elite. And we're not going to play by your rules. We think you're arrogant and out of touch. You're screwed us. And hey, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm the working class's revenge. Sure. And it's extremely potent. Uh, and I think that's a conscious at this point. I don't think it was conscious in 2016. There was a animal cunning um, that Donald Trump tapped into insofar as he had been in touch with sort of the cultural uh, products and cultural ethos that prevails uh, way outside high culture in this country. The you know the, his fans in the in the wrestling community, for example. Um, to Dominic's point, and I think it was David Brooks who coined the term that the people in our in our country who suffer most from what he called status income disequilibrium syndrome uh, are journalists, are reporters who have high status jobs and incomes that don't match. The, uh, the rarefied company and they keep. So Brooks is talking about himself, sure, but he's talking about a community, a very small community, who consumes a lot of journalism or are journalists themselves. Um, briefly to Hillary Clinton's point about loneliness, um, it's telling that she leans so heavily into activism, in part because this is a democratic conceit. But it is also probably the worst possible recommendation you could make for alleviating the conditions of, of loneliness in this country because activism is profoundly unsatisfying. What how, how do you affect political change in this country? Well, you compromise. You seek incremental change. It's the sort of thing that drives activists for whom everything needs to happen tomorrow. Otherwise, it's a profound uh, injustice. It drives them crazy. It makes them weird. It drives people away from them. It exacerbates the conditions of loneliness that currently prevail. I think probably the impotence of the government uh, in the face of this problem was best demonstrated last month by Senator Chris Murphy, who proposed two solutions to the crisis of loneliness, government top-down solutions, one of which is profoundly perverse, is to increase the funding for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to do the work of combating loneliness. The institution, this public institution in this country, perhaps most responsible for exacerbating acutely in recent years the crisis of loneliness and atomization in the society itself. Second, he would fund a new department that's with one deliverable, which is to establish, akin to, quote, national guidelines on nutrition, sleep, and physical activity, a set of guidelines for making friends. So it basically be a government-sponsored poster that tells you how to talk to people and be welcome and opening welcoming and open and 
uh, amenable to human interaction. Um, I don't think that's going to be very successful. I certainly don't think it's something taxpayers sh should fund, uh, but it demonstrates how little command they have of this issue and why the private mediating institutions in this country, which they've lost so much faith in, uh, no longer function to create cohesive communities, in part because Democrats have lost all faith in them and look for top-down solutions to other, what would otherwise be private individual concerns. Charlie, I ask a question to you. Who bears more responsibility for the Donald Trump phenomenon, Republican voters or some larger social and political dynamic? Republican voters. They chose him. This, for the record, is one reason of two I didn't like the David Brooks column. The first is that I didn't believe him. I thought it was a condescending humble brag, listing all of the great things that he has. The second is that he treats the people who made these decisions of which he disapproves as if they're automatons, as if they're below him. Well, of course, they would make these decisions because we up here are so educated and have put them in this difficult circumstance. No, no. The choice to nominate Donald Trump twice and perhaps a third time lies with Republicans. They can't be tricked into it. They have agency and they must exercise it. Dominic. Yeah, I, I think I think Charlie's right. Um, I think the uh, one of the big problems that we have uh, for political discourse uh, on both sides of the aisle, actually, is that there are lots and lots of people who live in the middle of this country who are satisfied with their lives. They really are. I promise. Um, they are not constantly resentful. They are not constantly angry at, uh, at, at, at some outside group of people that they believe is keeping them down. Um, and, uh, and, and I think those are the people who are really kind of left out of, uh, of this whole conversation. Noah. Well, I agree with everybody, but I don't think you can entirely discount social phenomena in, in part the decrease and lack of trust in American institutions, I think contributes to that phenomena. And yes, there's a lot to say for the fact that institutions have sacrificed quite a bit of trust, um, in part because the, trust, the lack of trust is mutual. Our institutions do not trust American public, American voters to reach the right decision and believe they have to be nudged or manipulated into doing the right thing. Second, there are elements of our society that benefit from that lack of trust and exacerbate that condition and so mistrust. Um, is that responsible for the Trump phenomenon? No, certainly not entirely, maybe not even in large measure, but I don't think it can be just dismissed. Well, I shouldn't be dismissed, but the question was more, I think, more or yeah. less. I th but I th Noah agrees with uh, you and Dominic, as right. uh, I do as well, but I associate myself with, uh, uh, with, with Noah's further points there. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor this episode, the Free the Economy podcast from our friends at CEI Health, Wealth, and Happiness, three goals that are essential to our lives, but attaining them is often impeded by heavy-handed government controls. That's why we must free the economy. Free the Economy is a weekly podcast produced by the Competitive Enterprise Institute that documents the opportunities for financial success and self-fulfillment in a world with less government control. How can smart urbanism improve our lives? Where is economic freedom under attack? How can we unleash the potential of small business owners and innovators. Each week, host Richard Morrison offers news you can use in fascinating conversations with experts in their fields to answer these questions and more. I think we can all agree freedom is contagious, so check out Free the Economy 
wherever you listen to podcasts or visit CEI.org slash free the economy, CEI.org slash free the economy. Please check it out. So, Charlie, we had a devastating loss suffered by the U.S. women's soccer team in the World Cup. Yet another 0-0 outcome. I didn't follow them extremely closely, but my by my count, that was two games that <laughs> at the end of, of regulation and overage, the, the random time that, that no one can keep track of that's uh, tacked down on the end. No one has scored a goal. And the first game, I guess, since it was... Um, uh, it wasn't a, a sudden death elimination type situation. It just ended 0-0 at a tie. This one, you had penalty kicks at the end. Uh, Sweden won, I think, 5-3 to three on the kicks, I believe. Megan, what's her name, uh, kicked, kicked one into the outer stratosphere, not even uh, close to the net. And you've had this debate about whether we should be rooting against uh, this this woke team, members of, of which uh, did not sing the national anthem, the face of which, even though she is much less important uh, to it or was much more important to it this time around. In fact, I think there's some criticism that she sh- shouldn't have been on the team or gotten as much minutes as she did. Uh, has uh, is is represented by Rapone? Was how to I don't Rapino. even know how, how to say it. Yeah, so I was I was pleased that they they were gone, uh, but there there are arguments that look you know it's your patriotic patriotic excuse me obligation to root for the representatives of the United States in a competition like this, even if some members of the team are very obnoxious. What's your view? Well, I'm sure my view is going to make me really popular. So here goes. I don't think women's soccer is very good. I've watched soccer for 30 years. I'm a fan of the game. And the difference between the strength and skill and pace between the men's game and the women's game just makes the women's game unwatchable for me. The U.S. women's team could be, and in fact was, beaten by an average high school boys team. It's not good sports. It's not enough to make up the difference. I love watching women's tennis, for example, because although there's a power differential, the skill level's so high that it makes it equally entertaining. And I think in the 1990s, when the men's serving game was filled with aces, it was actually more entertaining, women's tennis, than men's tennis. The same is true of gymnastics. But there just isn't the case with women's soccer. And I read recently that Megan Rapino is in favor of men playing in women's soccer now. <laughs> and for once, she and I agree that that is what it's going to take <laughs> to make it interesting. I say this because I don't follow this. I don't want what I'm about to say to sound as if I'm sitting crying into my cereal over it. But I think about this, as I imagine many other people do, as a total mismatch of obligations. Nobody is obliged to like America, of course. If you don't like America, fine. It's a free country. If you think there's a lot wrong with America, say it. But if you accept a role on the national team for America, you are obliged to like it or at least to keep quiet in the way a diplomat might. It seems to me really odd to argue that the national team that wears USA on their shirts stands under the national anthem at the beginning of the game has no duty to be patriotic 
but that it's unpatriotic for me, who is patriotic, <laughs> to dislike them for being unpatriotic while <laughs> representing me. Likewise, it seems rather selective to say, as Sam Stein did yesterday, this is not about politics, when the people we're talking about made this about politics against the wishes of the people who then reacted to that politics. Yeah. I didn't make women's soccer about politics. The women's soccer team did that. They own the consequences of that, not me. So I'm a little confused when I hear the case that you adumbrated being made. Why am I, who did not think about and would not have thought about the political or patriotic allegiances of a soccer team, obliged to stay quiet about their behavior come what may, while they get to say whatever they wish with impunity? And I think, yeah, but she, it's she, your she country... Was- it is a good yeah. argument. I do. It is our country. But it can't primarily or only be applied to the people who aren't representing it. That's just completely ludicrous. Yeah, Megan was asked, you know, what, what are you most proud of in your career? And it wasn't any particular play. It was equal pay. And that, that whole thing was uh, a crock. So, Noah, uh, in a prior to July 4th podcast, you adumbrated your view that uh, you're loyal to America no matter what. It's like a familial obligation. Does that extend to the U.S. women's soccer team? I mean, it does as much as it extends to anything else. I could care less about U.S. women's soccer or abroad. In the abstract, however, I, I, I would never recommend rooting against the country in any, any uh, sense, just as I wouldn't recommend against, you know, for example, our industrial capacity, uh, you know, the, even though I'd have very limited... Um, experience with exporting heavy machinery. I nevertheless support exporting heavy machinery and being the best at it. Um, This is all an abstract concept. The behavior of the U.S. women's soccer team that we're asked to ignore is, in this case, is extremely selective for the reasons that Charlie mentioned. I wanted to briefly highlight this piece that crossed my transom in the New Republic this morning, um, which articulated the following. It's figures like Donald Trump, and for that matter, Ron DeSantis, who have injected politics into the sports discourse, drawing the women's team into a con- <laughs> into a conversation no one asked for and attacking them for their own benefit. <laughs> this bizarre inversion of cause and effect is the basis for the entire Republicans' pounce phenomenon, yeah. in which we were, at, were asked to ignore the story and focus instead on the reaction to the story. That's the U.S. women's soccer team allowed themselves to become an avatar for, as you say, this, this utterly baseless notion that there is a real significant persistent pay gap between the genders in this country for a decade. And Megan Rapinoe made herself into a lightning rod in support of her political activism. And people notice it, and people who disagree with it take issue with it. And then they're the problem when politics becomes the focus of the national conversation. They made it the focus of the national conversation. Other people noticed it, and then the noticing becomes the problem. It's all profoundly dishonest, and you're obliged, as much as you're obliged to support the United States in the abstract, you're also obliged to take issue when you're being so obviously emotionally manipulated. So, Dominic, I'm going to guess, based on your opposition to the pitch clock in baseball, that you enjoy games with long stretches of nothing happening so that you are also a soccer fan, and probably delighted about the uh, uh, arrival of Lionel Messi 
which has supercharged Major League Soccer in this country. Am I right or wrong? Well, Rich, you've you've read my corner post about <laughs> soccer. You know where I come down on that game. Uh, I'm just going to say, the uh, to go off what Charlie was saying earlier, the problem with women's soccer is not the women's part, it's the soccer part. Um, but I think, uh, you know, the, the, the problem that they have um, – uh, with the World Cup and you know making this uh, making the equal pay such a big issue is that part of that argument was correct that uh, the women's team wins World Cups and the men's team does not and gets eliminated in the first round. So now that the uh, women's team has gotten eliminated uh, in in the first round, um, uh, I'm assuming that means their pay should go down, right? Um, I, mm-hmm. I don't make the rules though, um, but I, I think mm-hmm. the uh, It'll be interesting, too, to see how this works out for the broadcasters because um, they spend a bunch of money on the uh, rights to broadcast the World Cup under the assumption that the U.S. team is going to do very, very well because the rest of the world does not care about women's soccer at all. In countries where soccer is popular, um, they don't watch they don't hardly watch the women's uh, women's teams at all. So a lot of the revenue from that, from the broadcasting comes from the United States actually. So um, that's going to be so, probably ugly that they're not going to have them in the, in the, in the later rounds of the championship there. So Charlie, widen this out a little bit to soccer in general. Is Messi good? Seems like he's good. Is as far Messi as I can tell, good? He's, he's scored a lot of goals. <laughs> yeah. And what, what do you think is going to mean for soccer in this country, I was shocked to see these numbers when I actually I wrote about the uh, the equal pay thing a couple years ago, and I was looking at the attendance of the uh, professional women's league here in the U.S. and the the men's league, and was just shocked uh, at at the attendance number for the for the men, especially Atlanta. And I, I just pulled up the numbers for this season. I think this is as of. Um, um, three or four weeks ago, so it's not totally up to date. But Atlanta United FC, I, I hate. I just hate the whole. I hate the names of these teams. It, it's, it's so foreign. Um, but they're averaging forty-five thousand people per game. It's just amazing. Charlotte thirty-four, Seattle Sounders thirty-one, Nashville twenty-eight thousand. So it, it does. It, it seems to have established a pretty good little foothold prior to the arrival of Messi. And even I, I confess, yesterday I was uh, listening, um, you know, had Fox in the background and they do a little sports update in the in the morning and it was Messi, you know, or maybe it was ESPN, I forget, but Messi scored uh, the first goal for um, Miami and, and then he tied the game or won the game, I forget. And I was like, oh, I, I kind of want to see this. So I actually looked up the highlight of Messi's goals uh, this, is YouTube, the logical consequence. this is the logical consequence of supporting the cl- pitch clock, Rich. <laughs> it's only a matter of time. But it's even sucked me in. <laughs> it's even sucked me in a little bit. The first question is, is Messi good? Yes, he's extraordinary. He's one of the all-time great players. And make myself even more popular. Because the standard of soccer in the United States is so low, he's going to blow everyone away, even though he's a bit mm-hmm. older. Mm-hmm. Obviously... Places that have a fanatical soccer culture attract all the world's best players, and therefore they end up in England and Germany and France and Italy and Spain, not in the United States. I don't think that part's going to change. On your second question, though, yes and no. Clearly, soccer is more popular now than it was, 
and the numbers that you read out were impressive. But there's also 330 million people in the United States. So you have got a bigger market mm -hmm. to start with. And I suspect this is something of a niche. It sounds odd to say 45,000 people in Atlanta is a niche, but compared to the other sports that are on offer, that is still not particularly impressive. And that is and always has been soccer's problem in the United States. There's nothing competing with it where I'm from. Mm -hmm. It is the right. game. There yeah, are the marginal games like around the edges, and rugby and tennis. cricket, but the game yeah. is soccer. The game in America is football. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's going to change unless it's a band. I don't think that the demand is going away. And I can't see, therefore, how you would break the cycle not that i want to because i think football is a superior game but i don't see how you would break the cycle of children playing soccer but then not only starting to want to play football but getting into football because everyone around them is into mm -hmm. football and on and on we go until we reach the super bowl which is the one thing we still do all together as a country and 100 million people tune in so, Charlie, let me, let me ask you an extremely tactical soccer question. So, in the second second messy goal I was just referring to, it's a penalty kick. So, the you know the Dallas players line up right um, in front of the goal, and I'd Free never kick. seen this before. No, yeah, so n not that I'm uh, an expert, um, but one of the Dallas guys gets down on the ground behind his fellow defenders. What is that? Is that a common tactic, and why do you do that? Well, what that's about is if you are known for taking free kicks into the top left or top right hand corner of the goal which is in fact what Messi did then you often encourage the wall which is the line that you're describing to jump and if they are primed to jump it's possible for the player oh, to fake you out oh, wait for everyone to be in the air and then knock sense. the ball underneath so if they have someone lying down with his hands, of course, towards the goal, because if they hit his hands, it would be a penalty right. kick, which is discreet from a free kick. Ah. Uh, then he'll stop the ball with his body. I've actually learned something on this podcast. Wow. All right. That that makes sense. Excellent question to you, Dominic. Soccer in the Un United States will get bigger in the years ahead. Yes or no? Uh, sure. I mean, the uh, population will continue to grow. Uh, it's popular among... It's popular among demographics that are growing in the United States, namely um, uh, immigrants, especially from uh, South and Central America. So um, it can it can do well in that area and still be uh, a pretty big force just because, as Charlie said, we live in a country of 330 million people. I just want to say that I hate Dominic because a few years ago, maybe it was last year, everything's running together. He wrote this corner post proposing that American football is yet another example of Americans innovating better consumer products than the rest of the world. And something about it just chafed me because I grew up with soccer, but I've come to believe that he's correct. And it really pains mm -hmm. me to say that, but he was right. Yeah, when, it, when a game uh, is determined to make itself more entertaining and to, to change, to update with the times and take care of bad cultural developments <laughs> that have grown up within the game and make it more entertaining. I see what you're doing, Really I yeah. uh, sound like a no, soccer will get bigger, yes or no? 
I mean, as you said, the trajectory is upwards, so sure, perhaps, probably. But if the follow-up question is, do I care? Then the answer is yeah. <laughs> We could hear it in the tone of sure. <laughs> you don't like sports now. Charlie, bigger? Yes, for the reasons Dominic described, which is that the population will grow and we're going to have more immigrants. But I don't think that it's going to end up competing with football, both because football is a better option and because I can't see how you would shift away from the network effects that you get in places where soccer is the biggest sport. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's going to get bigger. I mean, it, it easily could eclipse the, uh, the, the the NHL. And the Messe phenomenon reminds me a little bit of when Pele came to play for the New York Cosmos. Now, that, that league washed out. Um, and I don't think this is this is washing out this time around. But there's a great documentary about this called Once in a Lifetime. Came out about 20 years ago. And if you in, are you if you're any kind of sports fan, even if you're not into soccer, this is a really uh, a great documentary. And the New York Cosmos at a time when soccer was not not such a big deal was uh, selling out Giant Stadium uh, every game for about two years. It was a very uh, rich. Wouldn't that cool... militate against the idea that it's that impressive then that? Atlanta has 45,000 and that the sport is growing. Well, th this was really truly exceptional. Okay. You know, they 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 had um Pele, they had this German guy, um they, they were this sort of super team. I remember as a kid there was this growing up in Washington, there was this team called the Diplomats in in Washington and it was real a niche niche thing but i remember going to a, a game at rfk that was sold out because it was against the cosmos and you could see this oh, okay. uh okay. this international uh celebrity but with that let's hit a few other things before we go dominic you somehow weathered no pun intended the massive thunderstorm that shut down washington dc last night that's right, Rich. The uh, great DC hurricane of Monday afternoon was quite an experience. Um, it's uh, sort of a, a rule of news media that uh, uh, when weather happens anywhere else in the world, it's local news. But if weather happens in New York City or in Washington, DC, it's national news. And so uh, you wouldn't believe it, but a, uh, uh, a place in the um, sort of uh, southern half of the United States had a severe thunderstorm in the afternoon. And there was a there was a uh, there was a tornado uh, tornado watch and warning for a little bit uh, about that, but again, uh, these are things that happen all over the country all the time, and uh, we don't hear about it yet for some strange reason. When it happens in places where all the journalists live, we all have to hear about it. So, um, it, it yeah, I, as much I, lo as I love I love uh, I love weather, especially thunderstorms. So I, I was on Twitter last night. And I kept on checking. Where's the Where's the incredible footage of this amazing storm, uh, massive storm that shut down DC and the federal government closed early? And there's just like nothing. I was like, okay, this is a yet another weather fizzle out of Washington DC. Noah, you've had a couple of days without the kids. Can I say, Rich, that I did the exact same thing yesterday? I was following the you know, weather and reporters all day long, and they scared the heck out of me. And I dropped what I was doing and took in all my lawn furniture under the assumption that it was going to be, you know, a twister. And nothing happened, and I resent very much ignoring my own rule, which is to mm -hmm. ignore D.C. weather people. But the reason why I had that time on my hands is because, yeah, no kids, haven't had the kids uh, since, <clears throat> gosh, Thursday night, I think. They went up to their uh, my in-laws in Connecticut. And it's, you know, it was nice. We had a kidless 
date night weekend, and that was great. But then after that, what the hell do you do with yourself? I have all <laughs> this free time, and way too much. I'm, I'm devoting you're, a lot you're of You're lonely. Work. You're lonely. You went online, began following Steve Bannon. Right. <laughs> I'm radicalizing myself here. I need to invest in something. I need to get into activism. Pass out some leaflets at the coffee shop. Yeah. Join a union. Yeah, exactly. Otherwise, I don't know what to do. The Teamsters myself. need you. Charlie. <laughs> need a lot more than me. Charlie. I have been rewatching the show Justified. Not the resuscitation of the show, but the original series, which ran between 2010 and 2015. It's set in Kentucky, in the rural areas approximately near Lexington. And I realized something. I love Southern accents. Kentucky is a little, little different, but I just love Southern accents. And this is such a ridiculous, preposterous thing for me to say. But if I had an American accent, that's what I would want to have. I just think it's so winsome. I love the sound of it. I like the pace at which the characters speak. I like the lilt. It's just... Um, Something about those those southern accents. I need to reread Albion Seed and see if there's anything in there on which part of Britain those inflections came from because I uh, I can't get enough of it. So I discovered at the local liquor wine shop uh, a beer, Elm City Pilsner from New England Brewing Company. It's just a, a wonderful, crisp, refreshing, uh, summery pilsner and it comes in cans and what i discovered is is you really got to put it in the freezer and get it almost frozen not quite but almost frozen and and then take it out before it's it's um the clumps of ice in your beer and you crack it open and there's something about the sound that you can tell it's it's really really cold and it almost has a viscous sort of quality but but not quite and it's so awesome and I wanted to stock up on this, but they they ran out of it because they you know didn't have a lot of it. And I figured, oh, I'll just go back in a day or two. I didn't get around to it. So last night there was literally nothing in the fridge. I've ignored this for months and months. I got some Bud Lights to do these Instagram videos dunking on on Bud Light when that was a a big phenomenon. I was like, I'm going to have one of these. You know, there's nothing else. I I, I got to I'm just going to do it. And, and this is not to further dunk on on Bud Light. This is a legitimate observation. But if you drink a Bud Light, like each, and you probably don't, usually don't notice this because you're at a barbecue or something or a game, you know, you're not uh, focused on the the taste of your Bud Light. But each individual drink, at first, there's a distinct beer-like flavor to it. And then this wateriness comes in at the end. It's it's like, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing. And how many um, did you have? I just had, you know, I only had about a quarter of this. It was, it's just horrible. It's just horrible. Horrible you're beer, say, but I highly the recommend. 26 of them, it just tasted indistinguishable <laughs> from water. I saw my first Bud Light in the wild over the weekend in a very long time, and I will admit, I judged the consumer. Probably shouldn't say, have, say but it again. I did. I couldn't help it. Oh, oh you saw someone yes, drink a Bud yes, Light? Yes, ordering yeah. a, a bottle at a, at a bar for the first time since the controversy, honestly. And I, I couldn't help but say, well, either you're not into the news or you're making a statement here. And I'm yeah, judging you for it. it's uh, you know it's more than the boycott. Like the, all the coverage of the sales being down now, it's like this conservative boycott still ongoing. It's not that. It's just it became a national joke, and and people have just gone and to other permission brands. to say what you said that this is not a good beer, and there are mm-hmm. hundreds of other better beers on the market, especially given the rise of microbrews. 
Yeah. Well, with that, it's time for our editor's picks. Dominic, what's your pick? My pick is corner post from Noah called For the Ecological Extremist Civilization is the Problem, uh, going after a sort of classic target of uh, National Review writers, which is uh, progressive writers that complain about air conditioning. And uh, it's just a completely ridiculous thing. Air conditioning is uh, a life-saving device that is, yes. uh, uh, you know, has made uh, large parts of the world livable that did not used to be livable, and we should be extremely thankful for it, not out there talking about how it's uh, destroying civilization. Now, what's your pick? A uh, couple of weeks back, Haley Strack wrote a piece. Biden considers cutting Who off Haley America's- Strack? Haley Strack is, uh, is she an intern with us? Buckley fellow. Buckley's an intern. Buckley fellow. Sorry, that She's was not, uh, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I just wanted to I didn't know what her title was. <laughs> She's very talented. She's going to have a long career if she wants it. Um, her piece is, Biden considers cutting off America's best uranium resources, even as he pushes to eliminate fossil fuels. Last night, Joe Biden pulled the trigger on this decision to block the development of, re- of uranium deposits in the Grand Canyon region. And you don't need to take my word for it or Haley's. Just read the New York Times write-up of it, which focused to a prohibitive degree on the political reaction this decision would produce from tribal interests who've been lobbying it and environmental interests who've been lobbying for it. And the thing had a, the piece had a throwaway line that, ah, this is the Biden line, which is just, ah, this is just like 1.3% of proven deposits. And Haley uh, demonstrates why that 1.3% is some of the most productive um, perhaps the least cost prohibitive to develop. And as the demand for nuclear fuel is rising, we're increasing our enrichment capacity. And Joe Biden is making it harder and harder to develop fossil fuels to meet our energy demands. This is a, a nakedly political decision, an ugly one. And if you want to know why, read Haley Strack. Charlie, what's your pick? Well, in the spirit of if, if you want to know why, read. I'm taking Noah Rothman. Our listeners will know I don't quite know what I think about foreign policy. And in fact, I've had Noah on my podcast to tease this out and Elbridge Colby on my podcast to tease this out. And they disagree. This post from Noah, Russia and China are trying to tell us something is obviously in the Rothman camp, not the Elbridge Colby camp. But I think it is a very persuasive argument for why, as Noah puts it, uh, the foremost geopolitical crisis on the planet that's in his view the war in ukraine matters and is not a sideshow and a distraction so in my ongoing attempt to educate myself where i yo-yo between two positions wildly this piece uh, was uh, informative and useful so my pick is dominic you know i'm not not into pitch count dominic but i'm very into logistics and supply chain dominic uh, this is just an issue that dominic uh, owns he's been filling in for Jim Garrity doing the morning jolt this week and leads this morning with an item about the, the demise of yellow. And I learned a, a term with the second sentence of this post. I was not aware of less than truckload trucking company. What is a less than truckload trucking company, Dominic? Um, they uh, ship uh, uh, freight uh, from multiple shippers on the same truck. So if you have a you have a shipment that does not take up an entire trailer. Uh, you can go to an LTL carrier, and they will combine it with other shipments from other shippers that also don't take up a whole trailer and deliver them that way. Yeah. Well, there you go. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National U podcast, and you rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission 
of National Union Magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Dominic. Thanks to Ball and Branch and Free the Economy. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors, and see you next time.